Hello friends, here is my appearance on Dare to Think, the podcast of the wonderful Kerry Baldwin, very curious, empathic, deep thinker, deep feeler, conscious person, great interviewer. I hope you enjoy, I'm including it as episode 98. I've recently been exploring the libertarian principle of self-ownership in greater depth. This axiom holds that no other human being has a higher claim on your body than you do. Libertarians use this to articulate human rights. But the implications of this principle go far beyond that. In this episode, I talked to Antony Samaroff about questions related to that. Questions like, how have our parents affected our communication skills? What is people-pleasing, and how does this negatively impact us on a societal level? Is empathy a superpower or a wound? What's the difference between healing that wound and relieving our suffering from it? What does effective communication look like between two wounded people? Join me, Carrie Baldwin, with Anthony Samaroff as we dare to think about the implications of self-ownership in interpersonal communication. Today I'm speaking with Anthony Samaroff. If you're one of my libertarian listeners, you'll recognize Anthony from his column at the Mises Institute and also his podcast, the Scottish Liberty Podcast. Today, though, we are not discussing libertarianism or economics, but relationships, specifically authenticity in relationships. As it happens, Antony's primary field of expertise is in psychology, right? Well, I'm a therapist, so I guess that's applied psychology. Um, I don't know what my primary field of knowledge is because I feel like these distinctions are really arbitrary. Like I'm fascinated by economics, obviously, and I self-studied. I didn't do it academically, but there's so much psychology in economics. You know, even the idea that humans respond to incentives is a psychological proposition. Sure. And then there's so much economics and psychology, even though the psychologists don't realize that. I mean, Behaviorism specifically, for example, talks about how people respond to incentives. More broadly than that, I remember reading the psychologist Carl Rogers, who's a humanistic therapist like myself, reading his book on becoming a person. Sometimes he had insights where I felt like I was reading Ludwig von Mises, like the mm. economist. Like they seem to be happening upon or pushing into the same in- insights. So Mm -hmm. what you could say is, I I know I've come a long way from your original question, but what I think would be fair to say is my profession, my primary profession is as a therapist and psychologist. And uh, although I'm more known for being a hobbyist economic journalist, although that's become partly a job as well, through happenstance. And that's my whole life story. You did ask me for a bio and I didn't send you one. So yep. I guess that's what they get instead. That's fine. That works. So 
so you had made this this post on Facebook a couple of weeks back and you'd posted one of your articles from Substack. I read it and thought that it would be interesting to have you on because I think like you, the work that that I do, the research that I'm focused on, it's sometimes about libertarianism itself as a philosophy and you know certainly I I'll talk on economics too. But I really like talking about the implications of these ideas, particularly recently, I've been talking and writing a lot about the principle of self-ownership and the implications for that in various relationships, friendships, marriage, that sort of thing. Mm. And so at any rate, I thought it would be really interesting to have you on because you seem to be doing a similar thing in looking at the implications of these ideas. So why don't you tell me more about what it is that you are aiming at, not just with this article, but more generally as well? Well, I've always been fascinated by communication skills or communication. I guess maybe it was a little bit pernickety at first. I was holding myself to very high standards in terms of my communication because it was a little bit of a, or a lot of a people pleaser. I was really worried about doing something wrong uh, or saying something wrong. So becoming precise in my words, but everything has a prior cause. Like, I mean, even that in itself, you know, I grew up in a household with a very critical parent. My parents were always arguing Another reason why I was interested in communication, because I saw it done badly. And even it was the criticism, I think, the constant fault finding at home that made me become a perfectionist, because that's just self-criticism, isn't it? Mm. Perfectionism, at least it starts with that. The, The gift in that is I'm very good at hair splitting and being precise, and that comes very useful when you're writing about stuff like economics. Mm-hmm. But it also meant that I'd start to formulate ideas about communicating and really get the strands together and categorize things. Okay. So when I was in my 20s, I picked up the book Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg, a very influential book. And that kind of blew my mind. And I read another book on communication skills called How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. And that had a lot of really great communication skills in it, not just for dealing with children, but for dealing with adults who are basically grown up children. So from that, I kind of got this obsession with communication skills and I'd watch YouTubes on it and and I'd start practicing these techniques. And when I practiced them, I learned things. In fact, it was practicing them that led me to want to become a therapist. So I'd learned things that other people hadn't written down. And then I'd start to type them up or go make a YouTube video. And I kind of like batted backwards and forwards through in and out of being like interested in writing about it and not. And I've got a lot of unpublished stuff on communication skills. And every now and then I I feel like picking one of them up and expanding on it and something like that. And I'm sure they will one day be collected, a a bunch of it in a book. In fact, I've written quite a lot of it. If the book ever does see the light of day, it will be over 10 years in the making. It will be made up of a lot of pieces that would stand on their own. Mm -hmm. And I guess this was kind of written because it was hot. You know, my Substack is psychosocial.substack.com. I intend to use it more and more in the future. 
there's there's so much that I could play off of there. Um, Please do. you had mentioned there at the very beginning was, you know, your experience with toxic family relationship at home. The first question I want to ask you is as a therapist, how frequently do you run into people who have had similar experiences with childhood? I don't know exactly where the lines and similar is. I mean, everyone seems to experience some level of neglect. A lot of people experience abuse one thing in my profession is you're often confronted with people that remind you of how good you had it. But then a lot of people who think they had it good, it's only because it's, they don't have anything to compare it to. The, one of the heartbreaking things about, I think one of the pe- reasons why people avoid reading books like How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk is not just because it puts responsibility on them to be a better parent because now they know now they know they could do better than they're doing but i think it's because it triggers up the pain mm-hmm. of not having been treated well and we live in a society where, where most people are kind of living in a dream world where they pretend that their childhood is better or they might not even know it might not they can't even pretend because it, it's not even in their level of awareness Mm-hmm. that they actually found growing up quite a struggle they didn't get the quality of attention they need adults were condescending and patronizing to them they did punish them instead of trying to understand what motivated their behavior their needs and preferences were disregarded they were patronized they were left to deal with things on their own when they really needed guidance and so forth and that is the norm Mm-hmm. That's not even talking about people who were severely abused or neglected. That's the kind of childhood that most people have. Yeah, I remember watching a documentary called The Wisdom of Trauma, um, and the primary person that they were sort of highlighting in that documentary was Dr. Gabor Mate. I don't know. If oh, yeah, he's great. Him. Yeah. That documentary was so eye-opening for me because he talks about how the negative things that we're having to deal with in our culture stem directly from trauma, specifically childhood trauma. And even he points out, this isn't about abuse. Like he makes a distinction between abuse and trauma. He says, trauma is not being hurt. It's being alone with your hurt. Oh, wow. That's, that's a beautiful qualification. Yeah. So, but he also says it's endemic in our society. So all of the addiction we're dealing with as a society, the depression, the divorce rate, like all of these things are all symptoms of an endemic of trauma that goes back to childhood. And it can be, you know, like you said, it it doesn't have to be abusive per se. It can just be a place, you know, our parents aren't perfect. And so it can just be a place where our parents failed to see where they needed to provide something and and just didn't even know any better. That has an impact on us. And of course, that can go all the way up into chronically abusive or or neglectful situations. But it does seem to be much more commonplace. In fact, uh, Dr. Maté has published a new book or is going to publish a new book that's coming out in February, I believe, The Myth of Normal. You know, what we think, the, the, the thing, yeah, the thing that we think of as normal is not actually normal. Yeah, yeah, I'm just going to say and it, it, it does cast a shadow in communication because people are triggered into defensiveness, for example, even when someone's being 
polite and conciliatory uh, or because it's triggering up old traumas like you know if you're you're criticized a lot well maybe you become resilient to criticism or maybe you come to hypersensitive it just really depends on how your personality interfaces with your experiences mm -hmm. i mean uh, people beat around the bush and they're people pleasers and things like that and and they might think they're being nice for example but other people think would you just get to the point or they read that behavior as having low self-esteem and they judge that person unfavorably even though they're trying to ingratiate themselves or because they ingratiate themselves and where did they pick up that habit mm -hmm. it's because they were walking on eggshells earlier on in their life or maybe someone learns to be super aggressive and verbally aggressive or portray a very forward attitude because the only way that they learned to get their needs met was to muscle in and you know maybe they benefit from that in some ways because the kind of more placating people give them a break or let them in front of the line but as a consequence of that they also miss out on intimacy or something like that because they don't really know how to connect with someone other than to intimidate them for example i'm using extremes people come all along a spectrum and it's not just one spectrum like from zero to 100 but it's several spectrums that intersect and another challenge is people think the way that they communicate oh that's just how i am that's just me mm -hmm. you know so when they try some new technique they think, oh, it doesn't feel like me. It doesn't feel authentic, right? Mm -hmm. but, but, but why does what you do feel authentic to you, especially if it doesn't get the results you want? It's just because it's what you're used to. And then there's another level of complicatedness uh, on top of that. If you're confident using a certain communication style, then it works. But if you're not confident using it, it doesn't work. So if you're in the ple people pleaser style and you try and be more assertive, what you find is you get worse results than when you're a kiss ass. Mm. And you're like, well, I don't, I don't want to do this assertiveness thing because people challenge me when I'm assertive. But it's because they pick up on the fact that you're not confident being assertive yet. And the only way to get confident, that's why people stay in that box. Because mm -hmm. the only way to get confident is to practice. But at first, when you practice, things are going to fall. It's like you've been playing the piano wrong because you've been teaching yourself. Then you go to piano lessons and the, the teacher shows you that your hand position is wrong, but you've not mastered this new hand position. Mm -hmm. So whenever you try and play the stuff that you used to play, you can't play it anymore. Right. And you think, well, this is stupid. But then when you try and play hard music, more advanced than what you're used to, you'll find you can never play it mm -hmm. with your old ha hand position. The only way that you'll be able to play difficult music is by correcting your bad habits. Mm -hmm. It's okay to busk it and to play with your wrist sagging when you're playing something easy. Mm -hmm. And that, that goes for everything, obviously, guitar, for, for anything that requires skill. Okay, you might, be, you might get away with doing bad habits, but if you want to play at an advanced level, you know, you can't have bad habits. If you want to have extraordinary relationships, it requires mm -hmm. extraordinary communication skills. Yeah. So, well, let me let me ask you this because, you know, it seems like first of all, everybody requires relationships, right? On one degree or another. And libertarians 
often get accused of being atomistic in their in, right. in their individualism and it's like no that old one not that old one again <laughs> yeah of the libertarian thinkers that I'm aware of none of them actually believe that we're our own private islands like we need each other that's the only way that yeah. any of our principles can actually play out well the principles are for living in community if you go and live in a mm -hmm. desert, desert island or your own what the hell relevance is the NAP None. right right <laughs> yeah so I mean we, we've got these principles because we know that an individual must enter a society we always get these crazy straw men argument about what individualism means. It also has a tendency to ignore the fact that, you know, various communities in themselves are real and important things like family, mm -hmm. for example. For example. Yeah. Yeah, your rotary club, your church society, your, yeah. you know, your chess club, your whatever, whatever you're into, your right. salsa class. I mean, it's not going to be really much of a salsa class. Yeah. If you turn up and there's only one of you. Yeah. So I think it's really good that we're talking about this because, and maybe libertarians are terrible about talking about community just because, you know. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Dare to Think. My mission with this podcast is to challenge and rethink our paradigms for politics, religion, and culture. My goal is to bring you high quality content that encourages you to do the same. I provide a ton of free content, but it's only possible by those who've joined my efforts by becoming monthly members. Monthly members get exclusive rewards, including access to a members-only forum, discounts on any of my web courses, and live quarterly Q&As. For a limited time, I'm also giving away a free signed copy of the new book I co-authored with the guys from the Libertarian Christian Institute called Faith Seeking Freedom, Libertarian Christian Answers to Tough Questions. You don't want to miss this. You can join for as little as $4 a month. This allows me to produce this content full time. For more information and to join, visit mereliberty.com slash membership. Now let's get back to the episode. So you're talking about communication, but I want to talk a little bit about this idea of people pleasing or placating. Yeah, I prefer people pleasing. You know, sometimes they use the term fawning. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just going to be really colloquial because that's the easiest way to get ideas across sure. i kind of call it like um sucking up to people to stay up out of trouble being nice even when you don't feel nice there's a wide range of people pleasing behavior agreeing to things that you don't want to do eliminating the word no from your vocabulary doing things you don't want to do not just agreeing to things you don't want to do blaming yourself when other people are being aggressive verbally aggressive towards you always making sure everyone else's needs come first and never having your own needs met even if it means you're going to be resentful either rationalizing away all your legitimate feelings about being taken advantage of i'm sure that everyone can think of a zillion people pleasing behaviors sometimes alternatively called being a doormat i i don't have an exhaustive list i think people know what we're talking about most of my listeners know that I'm divorced from an abusive marriage. And mm. one of the first books that I read after I separated was a book called Who's Pulling Your Strings by right. Do Dr. Harriet Breaker. So she talks about people pleasing in that book as sort of symptomatic of toxic, manipulative sorts of relationships. But she also talks about how a people pleaser is someone who tends to not have a good sense of self 
Okay. And, I agree. Yeah. And so she, she talks about something called the vanishing self, whatever it is. And, and maybe you don't even get a chance to get to know who you are even, right. This can go, this I'm sure goes back to childhood, but one of the reasons why somebody might become a people pleaser is because they have no real sense of their mm-hmm. own personal identity. Well, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the time it kind of happens when people are in a situation where they chronically over weeks, months, years, when they're growing up, are exposed to someone or more than one person that they really need to placate in order to survive in their formative years, whether it's a caregiver or parent or the atmosphere in boarding school, or they learn to be highly tuned in to the emotions and the needs of other people around them. Uh, and they associate their, you know, it feels very threatening for mm-hmm. anyone else to be displeased with them. So they never want to displease anyone. They learned that earlier on. Now, what I see in the article, of course, is there's nothing wrong with caring for the emotions of others. Right. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. a good thing. Yeah. But the question is, where do you put it in your hierarchy of values? Yeah. Are you willing to just want the approval of others at all costs? even at the cost of your authenticity, mm-hmm. you know, are you going to sacrifice your self-respect to gain approval all the time? It compounds because you're training people. You're training people to have an expectation on you that you always come last. And then when you try and break out of that role, they're not going to like it because they're used to you being behaving that way. And you're going to get way more pushback than you would have if you just drawn the line early on. This is a very sad state of affairs to be trained into because it's, mm. it's not just that you're dealing with the fact that you're a people pleaser. In fact, when you try and climb out of that, you're terrified of attack, being verbally attacked. You've been conditioned to be terrified of it. Not mm. only that, when you try and break out of the old pattern, you will attract being verbally attacked at a higher rate than an average person exhibiting the same communication skills as you. Plus that will continue to happen until you get more confident at asserting yourself. So it does present a raft of challenges for people. I mean, it happens not only, and you mentioned this in in your article, this isn't just like romantic relationship, it's any relationship. And one thing that I noticed in particular with past couple of years with COVID and all these lockdowns and nonsense and stuff is that people couldn't say no to mm-hmm. these requirements. And I kept- Oh, that's point- a good point. I never thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it at large. on this, this side of sort of studying manipulative relationships and abuse and that sort of thing, and what the symptoms are, what those, what it looks like when you are the one who's being manipulated. And I saw all of those in the pandemic. You know, if, mm. if you were in a personal, wow. have you been speaking about this in your podcast? Uh, not as much as I probably oh, should. That's such a great angle. Yeah. I never even thought of that when I, when I wrote my placating people article, but it yeah. would be so good if you used your expertise on that from firsthand experience to analogize. Yeah. Because that's really good. It, I mean, on the one level, it's the capitulation of people to this, I like sort, that of tyranni- to, to this sort of tyrannical thing, but The reason why people are capitulating in the first place is because they have these problems in other aspects of their lives, right? For sure. But we can't actually deal with the tyrannical aspect until we deal with it with ourselves in our own personal lives. 
I'm in complete accord with you on that. I really do think that politics is a big projection. It's mm. interpersonal politics on the world stage. The kind of political manifestations we have in society are like a projection of people's unconscious material. I mean, what is your first exposure to authority? It's your parents. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't be very surprising if we get our ideas on what authority should be from our parenting styles. And there's some evidence of this. I mean, Lloyd de Moss, sadly deceased, charted different societies through history and related them to their parenting, the parenting styles of the generation just before that society, for example. Germany had very retrograde parenting styles compared to the rest of the of Europe mm -hmm. just before Hitler came to power and and things like that. So yeah, I, I definitely think people get the government that not that they deserve, but that they expect, you know, and we have created the society of people pleasers. So it wouldn't be surprising in the same way that people pleasing people often attract a partner with narcissistic tendencies would live in a society where their politicians were very domineering you know mm -hmm. and in scotland the government's a very completely nanny state government oh you can't even look at what cigarettes are on offer in a shop anymore they have to be mm. hidden you can't ask for the price of them someone mm. needs to give you a, a price list <laughs> they won't tell you the price if you say what's the cheapest pack of cigarettes they wow. put minimum they put minimum prices on alcohol but the thing is, people have an expectation in Scotland that the government is going to be their mum. Mm. And that's what they got. You know, we've got a female uh, leader who's been in power for, I think, almost 10 years. And as far as she's concerned, she's Scotland's mum. And a lot of people said she sounded like a dictator over this COVID stuff. She's wagging her finger on television at the yep. people telling them that they're being very naughty for mm -hmm. not complying with COVID regulations. It's not particularly relevant that they're that she's female, apart from the fact that it, it really seems like, in this case, the people don't want the state to be their strict dad. Right. You know, it's not like, it's not like that. It's like they want mum. They want the state to give them their lunch and their dinner yeah. and to clean their clothes for them. And all of that stuff, they really do want to be taken care of in that way. And it's a crazy psychological phenomenon, what we see. Well, and I've heard uh, Jordan Peterson talk about the Oedipal mother is somebody who does for her children what her children should do for themselves. Right. Such that, that, yeah, such that there's a now a toxic dependence of the children on the mother. And the mother wants it. She's not, she's not willing to let her children go and grow up and be adults. Right. And uh, I know exactly what you're talking about when you're talking about uh, Scotland, because in my home state, New Mexico, our governor, you know, every time she did a press conference, I kept, uh, I, I actually had to stop listening to it because it sounded a little bit too much like my wow, ex-husband. Um, but she, she literally sounded like, a resentful mother who hated her children and hated the fact mm -hmm. that she was a mother 
a lot of finger wagging and you're not doing well enough and this is your fault. And if you just obey me and do what I say, then, you know, all of that, all of that nonsense. Yeah, we have that a lot. And you're right. I wouldn't say that that's particular to, to females. But there's, there, there seems to be a stereotypically female style of authoritarianism and mm-hmm. a stereotypically male style of authoritarianism. Yes. And that's why I brought it up because it's, she seems to fit the mold of that. Mm. And she's become more, she was already authoritarian before all this, but she's become more aggressive with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the first minister of Scotland. One of the things you say is you should be very suspicious when anyone self-identifies as an empath or highly sensitive person. Uh, You say, because in my experience, this is a defense they developed to cope with abusive behavior from a caregiver and a child. This is something that I noticed uh, straight off the bat after, after my divorce, all of these, these articles saying, oh, you're, you know, if you're an empath, you're going to be attracted to a narcissist and here's what you should do about that. And it's like, "Mm, Mm. maybe Mm. this isn't something to be proud of. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that's why I made that point. Again, it's an unfinished article I had somewhere where I was just raging at the fact that all sorts of people were on Facebook going, uh, I'm an empath, you know, oh, well, <laughs> as an empath, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, these people, they're, they were driving me crazy because I am, by their definition, an empath. And that's how I end up being a therapist. And it's very useful. Well, it's not, it's useful for me. It's not useful for them mm-hmm. because they've not identified it as a consequence of trauma. Right. Whereas I have, which mm-hmm. means I can use it in my job to be extremely understanding of people and to help give them a level of empathy that they'll find nurturing and healing. But it's a wound. It's like Mm. like someone came over uh, with a a big pair of boots and stamped in you Mm. and you've got an imprint in your body that matches their boots, right? Right. So where their boot imprint impacted you you have a boot shaped hole right and 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 that's why you keep on getting attracted to people who mistreat you right because your boot shaped hole fits their boot like a lock and a key yeah and until people stop going i'm such an empath (laughs) like you know like this is a a badge of honor that they're wearing and start going, well, you know, I learned to be highly sensitive to other people's emotions because I don't want to, and I don't want to hurt their feelings because when I was a kid, I had to walk on eggshells. And if I said the wrong thing, I was going to get attacked by one of my parents. Right. That's maybe a more useful thing to say than I'm an empath. Yeah. People need to get over themselves. It's like you, you, you create this, you even create this identity around being an empath because like you said earlier on in the conversation, you lack a strong sense of yourself. So right. you need to create this identity to, to base your self-esteem on, but it's not yourself. It's an identity you've created. And in, until you stop 
seeing having this false identity as your source of worth and just see your source of worth as intrinsic it's going to make it difficult for you to heal you know when i was reading these blog articles and and social media posts i thought this is your vulnerability like this mm-hmm. is this is what exposes you to these toxic relationships right. this is a place where you should be aware of aware of why it's there and create a boundary for yourself um and you speak about about boundaries too um i'm not sure exactly how you define a boundary, but I've always understood a boundary as uh, a rule that I follow for myself. It's not, it's not a rule I place on, on others in my relationships. It's a rule that I, I follow. I decide, okay, this is, this is something that I need to work on. And so I'm going to start doing X instead of Y or whatever. It seems to me that this glorifying these, these vulnerabilities, mm-hmm. these things glorifying that, that a wound. yeah, glor- that's a great way to put it. Glorifying a wound keeps you from being able to create a boundary necessary for your own, you know, your, your own health. That's right. What I've noticed with people is once they learn that they have a trauma, that, that causes them to get triggered in, in some way, it's very easy to sort of say, well, this is the one part of myself that can't be healed. Mm. I wonder if, uh, what, what you think about that can traumatize people be healed? Well, I mean, it's a lifelong process, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, what does healed mean? What does, I mean, can people get better than they are? Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, I don't want to be he- healed of my increased capacity to empathize with others because mm. it's useful mm-hmm. for my profession. I maybe want to be healed of my suffering. Mm-hmm. I want to be healed of, say, feeling ashamed when I say something, when I tell a joke in company and no one laughs. Mm-hmm. You know, why do I need to feel such excessive shame as something from the past being triggered? So, yeah, I mean, people can get a lot better, but it's a bumpy ride. I mean, I know some people who've got so much better than they were when I knew them years ago. They're happier, their communication's better, and yet they still go into downweights and they, they feel tremendously depressed or anxious. I remember the last time I felt depressed. It was after I got COVID for about mm. a week after I felt tremendously depressed. And that was the first time I felt that low in ages. But it used to happen regularly. And I would think, damn, I've put all this work in my whole life and I still feel this bad. What's mm. the point? I'm never going to be cured. I'm never going to be healed. And it's not until you get out of that slump that you can see again how much progress you maybe have made on day-to-day things you know that you Mm -hmm. take for granted so there's always improvement room for improvement in some areas Mm -hmm. and a lot of it's getting better at being a friend to yourself Mm. Uh, that's really good one of the things that i've come across in numerous places unrelated except that they're talking about relationships is that the best way to improve a relationship is to work on yourself. Um, It tends to be counterintuitive, at least for perhaps the traumatized person. (laughs) Especially the person who's used to putting the other person first. Yes. But 
that's not true. That's not the way it is. The, the reality is, is that it starts with you and that requires building a level. Well, just building some self-awareness, being reflective of what you're experiencing and, and perhaps why. And that can be daunting for people who've never done it before. There are people that, that I know who might enjoy, you know, hearing what I have to say on a topic, but they don't want to think about it with regards to themselves. I, I hear you. I hear you. Right. You know, there are closer relationships, you know, friendships where I'm aware of the fact that they can be triggered in a particular way. And I want to be sensitive to that. But there's a difficulty there. Uh, like I was reading this, this book that talked about something called the fear-shame cycle. Mm-hmm. And it was discussing specifically romantic relationships, but I think this could be true of platonic relationships as well. When somebody experiences fear, and she argued that it was women who experience fear or insecurity, if they react from that, then it can elicit shame in her male partner, which if he reacts, then it just triggers more fear, insecurity in her, which if she reacts, then it triggers more shame. And it's sort of this like downward spiral. But I'm, you know, I guess I'm wondering, because you mentioned communication. She was sort of of the opinion that you don't talk about your fears or insecurities um, or what shames you or, or whatnot. But I'm kind of wondering you know, how do you communicate then somebody's insecurities can elicit shame in another person? Well, there's communication skills that are useful for dealing with that kind of thing Mm. as well. I've got a few podcasts on that. One's called, Do You Really Understand People? Again, coming back to the sort of empath thing, your ability to hold presence for other people's reactions to what you say i love the picture of a knight it's such an ancient archetype for us he's always depicted with a sword and a shield and i feel Mm. like that's relevant to so much in life so you know you've got your sword which is your ability to say what it is you have to say Mm. but you don't go out without your shield either (laughs) and yeah uh, there's a, a shield which is to demonstrate understanding. When you experience someone in conversation, whatever the reaction is, you always have the option to try and communicate something of what you understand of what they've said back to them. And Mm. this, I feel like, was the approach that was really refined and introduced to us all by Carl Rogers. He, He talked about it a lot and he helped contribute to making it the norm throughout psychotherapy, regardless of what people's modality are. You know, our first tool is to demonstrate something of what we've understood of where the other person is coming from. And that melts resistance a lot of the time, as far as it can be melted. I'm not saying there's going to be some, There's I can't promise 100% results. There may just be some people who just don't have what it takes to engage in authentic relationships or emotionally open relationships. And maybe they will join together with someone who has a 
sort of complementary dysfunction. Either both of them don't talk about it and don't feel, and sometimes some people don't feel the need to talk about it. That's mm. the thing. Mm-hmm. The problem is if you feel the need to have things out in the open and the other person doesn't, right? Mm-hmm. The, the other thing that can happen is that person partners together with someone who does and the other person does all the talking and they do all the listening and these like, mm. you know, that can happen. And if it's stable, then it may actually work better than some relationships where people have to hash it all out. Right. Maybe until kids come along and the kids have different needs and the kids don't like the fact that no one explains anything to them and mom and dad never express their feelings and things like that. Mm. And it might cause problems for the kids sometimes, but it doesn't cause any problems for the adults. But I mean, I can only speak from my own experience and my own experience is that really depthening and broadening your communication skills, your ability to receive others as well as your ability to express yourself well and sort of master yourself in situations has led to me having tremendous relationships. So I guess that's why I'm an advocate of it. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking with you, um, Anthony, and we've got some, some things that I can put down in the show notes when, when we get that published. Uh, Thank you for your great questions and your curiosity. Uh, I'm afraid I dominated and did most of the talking. Oh, it was, it was lovely. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Well, I look forward to speaking to you more and hearing more from you in the future. Thanks so much for having me on, Kerry. Yes, most definitely. Thank you. You've been listening to Dare to Think, the official podcast of MereLiberty.com. This episode was created due to the generous support of my patrons and underwriters. I'm so very grateful to Bob, Patrick and Shannon, Dave and Nina, Jean, John, Tom, and my newest patron, Nathan, for helping me get this episode published. If you've enjoyed today's episode and would like to join me and my other patrons and underwriters in our effort, you can sign up at MereLiberty.com membership. Joining on a monthly membership comes with exclusive rewards and premium content. Alternatively, you can choose a one-time donation. You'll find a direct link to the membership page in the description to this episode. You can listen to more episodes by subscribing on virtually any podcatcher, and you can read my articles on MereLiberty.com and the Libertarian Christian Institute, where I'm a regular contributor. You can follow me on social media like Facebook, Twitter, Minds, and Locals. 